11. Oh, shit. I screwed up. <laughs> um, all right. Left Jest here. Rog of Meta speaking. We're back with my co-host, Alex Patak. 9-11, everyone. And Anders Lee. Anders Lee here, 9-11. And uh, we got a special guest today. We got Mr. Arish Singh in from Chicago. Hello, Arish. Hello. Uh, Arish was just here for the Cinderblock Comedy Festival, which is the uh, most important comedy festival in the world. It's the Shout only out. comedy festival that matters. Yeah, it's probably the only existing one because they uh, they weed out all the straight white males uh, mm-hmm. to make room for guys like me and Arish. Uh, <laughs> Arish, have you have you have it? Who a runs good the world? Uh, Girls. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Girls, the TV show. Who <laughs> <laughs> runs the world? And their uh, parents. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Arish, have you? What have you been doing in New York? What's it like? Do you love uh, it? Do you like our pizza? I do. I do like, do you it. like I, our I, wealth yeah, distribution. I, I don't actually have strong uh, opinions on pizza. Uh, mm. No, 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 you're no, off no, this no, podcast. Right. This is I'm getting edited podcast. out. Oh, jeez. Uh, Deep dish. What about is that? Dog it's star, a little dog better star. than some other places. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, our our starving homeless people look good. swag. Yeah, they got you denim pizza jackets. Rat, you know, you got that. And we have pizza. Yeah. <laughs> Never forget pizza rat. That would not have that would not have gone down with a deep dish slice. I will say, pizza yeah, rat. Our, that would not have worked. Our whole sausage rat is just not doing that well. It yeah. didn't really get the branding it needed, but yeah. That would be a bit funny, uh, 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 like a new video that it's the rat trying to drag a big piece of pizza and it can't. Would yeah. that be funny? Yeah. It, would uh, millennials like that? Yeah, that's good. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna send some emails. <laughs> uh, so how do you know Arish? Uh, Arish and I met in Chicago or Minneapolis. I think Minneapolis. Yeah, yeah. just doing, you know, doing high octane political comedy, right, in the weeds of the Midwest. Were any holds barred? Uh, no, <laughs> none. Wow, that seems yeah, dangerous. Yeah, we told it like it was, and we uh, kicked some ass, and yeah, mission accomplished. I, I kind of veered into jingoism there, but yeah. uh, <laughs> by own volition. That's okay. Uh, I, I like how it became like an action film for us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, uh, Michael Bay directed this podcast <laughs> episode. Uh, but uh, yeah, Alex. Yeah, comedy, take no prisoners. That's how you do it. <laughs> yeah, right. Or Arish is uh, based in Chicago now. How's Chicago? How are we doing Chicago over there? Chicago is very good. I like Chicago a lot. Um, it's got a, it's got great comedians. Uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of people building really good material. I think what you see often it's Chicago is uh, people that build their material there, then they move out to the coast. Or I've seen that. Uh, Al Capone is he still a thing? Yep, Al Capone still runs the city. Uh, you gotta, you got to get <laughs> Caponiacs like that. I could not get. Uh, I wanted to host an open mic, and then I freshly got uh, his blessing. He wouldn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it took a long time. Uh, I had to but he said no more than three minutes. <laughs> it's called politics, and it's what this podcast is about. <laughs> well, the was he reincarnated because the mayor of your fine he's city kind of sucks i will say your mayor sucks well, and that way sucks. he's al capone <laughs> well i mean <laughs> just because rom was reincarnated you know just, i think <laughs> that's like the worst least of his blogs. scaramucci that's who he is <laughs> <laughs> uh all right so how is our, how is everyone's week are we all ex- did everyone finish the hillary clinton book the um, diary, the 2016 diary. I haven't finished my third time through. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I have learned how to live my life. Wait, what? <laughs> ha- well, see, I feel a little bit miffed about the whole thing because if you remember, was it Scott McClellan, I believe? Uh, Bush, Bush's press secretary in 2008 wrote a book reflecting on his time uh, in the Bush White House, critical of the Iraq war and the decision to go in and, and the way the media kind of spun it. His book, what happened? So she stole uh, a a book title from from Scott. Uh, I believe it was McClellan. Um, Give it back, Hillary. <laughs> Give it back. Mm, she really is a crook. <laughs> Truly. Lock her up. Lock her up. I Did mean, anyone? Do, do you for stealing Scott McClellan's book title? <laughs> I think the whole irony of the like the debate now is like all these people who are groaning about political unity and not bashing candidates or uh creating division and now hillary's coming like bernie had just formed a coalition with kamala harris elizabeth warren and now more even cory booker's on board for single healthcare. payer what single payer yeah yeah I, thanks for filling in uh but uh and now she's going out of his way her way to throw him under the bus well it's not like she just wrote it she's been writing it in the woods for yeah <laughs> right, 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 nine right. months so. she'd hold up <laughs> yeah. in a cabin with bony bear 
and wrote the Let's book. Let's get this shit done. <laughs> Which, yeah. Kanye remixes her book. That would be so good. Who, who is actually saying that? What happened? What happened? What happened? <laughs> <laughs> That's a hot reference. <laughs> I I've, see. I have yet to hear one person say she does not have a right to write the book. That's the thing. Nobody's sure nobody's telling people, her to shut up. I'm no, sure I've never those heard. Exist, and I'm sure someone did tell her to shut up. Yeah, probably. Do. For but, every bad person well, you can imagine, that is a real person. There's also <laughs> also any Democrat running against a Republican in the race is close. Those people don't want her to be writing a book, going on a book tour. Like if they've been interviewed. Uh, there's a I forget her name, but there's a there's a senator from uh, Montana who's running is is a Democrat and she's running a tight race uh, in t- 2018, and they wanted her to comment on the book whether she was excited or not, and she just walked away from the report. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Caskill. Uh, yeah, I believe that's yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, and I mean, so you know, like there, it's always framed in the idea of that this is about a woman getting to express herself. It was just such a flimsy, phony, faux feminism. Like it just it doesn't. It doesn't hold water. Like, if you care about identity politics, you should 100% be against Hillary putting out a book, being this kind of spokesman. It's a whole kind of weird branding of identity politics that's just such gar. I mean, identity politics, I think, is a great thing. I don't like it when people just go, like, you know, just roll their eyes at that word. Uh, Identity politics defeated apartheid. Um, Identity politics Mm. is what's driven, like, a lot of uh, important civil rights legislation. Even when we were dealing with, uh, I mean— throughout the war on terror. I mean, that's identity politics for a lot of people. Uh, that was what drove, um, uh, you know, these people being persecuted, uh, seeing the connection there. Um, and uh, Well, in Hillary's case, it's like identity politics that are specifically like, my identity as Hillary, please come to my book event. Yeah, I yeah. mean, yeah. It's, it's like, <laughs> well, there's a, there was a satire piece that came out in uh, uh, The New Yorker that was basically like, <laughs> the gist of it was like, the only people who would... Uh, People who are criticizing Hillary actually just have uh, an axe to grind against other women or something mm-hmm, like right. that, like women in their life, like they're you know talk about like their mother-in-law or whatever. And like basically, I thought that was a, the most brilliant inadvertent satire because basically the only positive thing in that way was to say that Hillary was a woman. Like mm-hmm. you couldn't actually use her character to like satire like that as being like what's being you know. What's so weird about that as a draw and as the main thing that her defenders use as a cudgel against everyone is she is a woman, but she's not the only woman or all women. She's surrounded by women. There are other women who run against her, but for whatever reason, once you've opposed her, you've turned your back hand towards your Irish wife who is pregnant. Yeah. Yeah, and she's also surrounded by men, you know, one of which I won't name names, but uh, is a sexual predator trump <laughs> yes we're talking about we call we've, him drunk we've seen yeah. those pictures. <laughs> uh, but like with the fire's hand small <laughs> well yeah it's it's she's become a symbol for something and if you oppose that in yeah the slightest way you're attacking people who uh, in my opinion over identify with her right uh, and there are a lot of sexist men who voted for her and support her and, and there is yeah. a lot of sexism sexism she's endured mostly from the right honestly for decades well that's their whole thing though yeah yeah, yeah. i mean <laughs> that's, that's kind of classically their, their thing uh, right the whole thing is like that it's this weird so it, i mean it's just taking identity politics and putting in this kind of neoliberal frame where you your purpose is to uh cheer on this elite member of diversity right like you're not concerned about everybody moving forward from these groups it's like you just have one to cheer and identify with so that that's the framework they use for pretty much anyone who fits the diversity category and that's like a that's a debasement of what identity politics has been so yeah i'm really i i feel like her being tanked over that stuff is totally worthwhile and like i like it's not just a opposition to hillary as a person it's an opposition to that whole framing and branding i i want to see that politics end. yeah uh, Natalie Shore uh, wrote a great piece a couple months ago. Uh, you guys know Natalie Shore? She's yeah, great. she used to yeah. do comedy in New York before yeah. she started writing for uh, Adam, a- Adam is, is a bad man. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think she might be actually from Chicago at one point. Yeah, yeah, oh, she's from now Chicago. you want Natalie back. <laughs> <laughs> you can't have Natalie. Are you claiming Natalie? Uh, yeah, based in L.A. now, she wrote a great piece called The Problem with Pro-Hillary Commentary. Uh Having prioritized representation over redistribution, writers like Rebecca Traister talk about Hillary Clinton like she's the tenacious, beleaguered heroine in a movie, not a powerful plutocrat. Clinton's lack of 
quote unquote likability becomes a manifestation of our resentment of ambitious women, not a reaction to failed neoliberal policies that worsen people's lives. Even Clinton's war hawkishness is imagined here as something she had to do to prove her femininity, uh, and if she didn't, it would undermine her toughness. In, tr in Traster's narrative, Clinton's being experience is more important than what exactly that experience entailed. Uh, in conclusion, she writes, this is a fine framework for analyzing pop culture, but it's a deeply fucked way to think about politics. That's uh, pretty interesting, the experience argument. Yeah, it's like, well... The Terminator has a lot of experience shedding human skin. <laughs> right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, the More idea that she Connor. was soft on terror <laughs> is ridiculous, right? Yeah. Like she was incredibly tough on terror. She droned all those people. All right, Anders, I feel like you had something to add, but I don't want to talk about Hillary Clinton for our whole podcast yeah, again. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was just going to She's like say, a guest on our podcast. I was... Today, I was thinking about this. Uh, I would much rather, if it came down to it, I would probably rather hang out with Hillary Clinton than Bernie. As a person, she seems like more fun. She seems more interesting to talk to. We could sip Chardonnay. How dare you? You know, Bernie would be like... I think I'd be more interested in seeing what she's like, yeah. Yeah. I like but, to get wasted with Hillary. Right, yeah, yeah that'd be fun. But, but that doesn't matter. Like, it doesn't... I want to know uh, stories about Henry Kissinger. It's the same thing for <laughs> yeah. George Bush, Al Gore type yeah, thing. Yeah, I would like, Of course out. you would rather hang out with George Bush. He's done <laughs> cocaine and he has good stories. <laughs> yeah, she's she may as well... But that's irrelevant. You know, it's like... is. Uh, it, it, people are saying like, oh, she's not allowed to write a book. Sure. Are we allowed to criticize her for the things she says in the book? You know, like if she when she comes out and blatantly lies about 2008, about how she uh, turned right around and backed Obama after she stayed in it for like months um, hey, he might get assassinated. He might get it. Yeah. No, Iowa. <laughs> <laughs> right. She was running a, uh, you know, graceful. <laughs> um. Also, I feel like even being reductionist and going just voting for who you like better as a personality, that's less of a voucher for Hillary than more of just Bernie looks like the most boring old ass man you ever did yeah. see. Just read you a tax book until you fall asleep. I feel like that was James Adomian's joke when he was doing the impression of him. But uh, I don't know. He's funny, so I used it. Yep. Yeah. Uh, there. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, again, like Alex said, I don't want to spend too much time. It reminds me a lot, like the way people react to the, the criticism of Hillary's book, it reminds me a lot of how uh, like edgy comedians react to like blogs coming out about them, where it's just like, no one's saying you can't say what you said. It's just there are going to be consequences to it. Oh, where the initial reaction is always like, oh, so I couldn't say freedom the N-word and I'm Kurt Masker? Like, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, freedom of speech, yeah. Anyway, uh, we've all been there. Right. Would it be? And by the way, we're not going to listen to a three-hour Hillary Clinton podcast. Oh, it's like all these people no, who are I'm like, before you criticize her, you have to like read the entire book and listen to eight fucking podcasts. I watched the Vox interview. I I, I, I my, watched that I too. I, Stop giving but I'm not, me homework. No <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, uh, would it be a good running gag if we just kept saying I don't want to talk about Hillary Clinton and then, and then a was, full thirty yes. minutes talking about Hillary that Clinton. is literally all socialist podcasts are. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's every Facebook article. Yeah. yeah, we should give her her comedic due. Her great Gandhi joke. What was the Gandhi joke? It was uh, she was t uh, she does a Gandhi quote and she uh, then says, um, you know, uh, uh, Mahatma Gandhi, he uh, owns this gas station up the way, um, you know, <laughs> a couple miles, and then that was her, her big joke. It's the, her timing is what sold it. That was really good. This is in the '90s, by the way. Yeah, yeah. Jeff Dunham wrote for politicians. It's now I wow. did punch up. Yeah. <laughs> I do not want to talk about Mahatma Gandhi the whole exactly. podcast, <laughs> but. It is funny that in Civilization they programmed him wrong, so an error made him the most warlike, and now they kept that in for the rest of the games, so every time you play as Gandhi, he's warlike. So I feel like she should use that as a joke, maybe, that it's a funny Gandhi joke. I'm chilling uh, with Mahatma Gandhi. <laughs> Gandhi actually, I think by adopting a... Uh, completely non-violent stance you are inviting the most violent war upon you so in a way you are the most pro-war right right it's like when he's actually quoted in a letter as saying um the ways that jews should resist is uh to just uh to be non-violent and allow themselves to be persecuted and they did that that was a good yeah. move there was, holy shit gandhi is trevor noah there's a lot of gandhi uh, dislike. There's actually they, yeah, people yeah. want to take down his statues. They're taking it down in South Africa. 
his stature because of his kind of you know his race. Yeah, he kind of believed in a racial hierarchy and. Uh, yeah, so. uh, a lot of it's coming out about pedophilia rumors too. Man, I do uh, not feel like all I have for owning a gas station. <laughs> wow, like Arish's galaxy brain gone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, well, so uh, uh, Arish, you started in uh, Iowa, and uh, I guess you could say you came into prominence. Actually, this happened. I think you were yeah, on. That's interesting. Yeah, I, were, I met you. I think you, maybe that. Night. I met you the day after this happened. Like we had followed each other on Twitter, and I knew. No, you met. You. I think you may have met me the same day. Like I oh, think I drove up that r- afterwards, and then I was. Oh, wild! Yeah, because yeah. uh, yeah, I knew who you were, and you had posted about going to the Trump rally and protesting it. Uh, I didn't really know what the result of that was, and then uh, you were doing a show, and I was walking to that show, and I was looking at ABC News, and you were. On the ABC News Twitter feed, yeah, being escorted out at a Trump rally. Can you tell us what happened there? I don't know if I posted on it before, because this is how I th- I didn't. So like I've since college, like I've been involved in like protests. Like like that's sure. the what you do as a standard move is like you go there. Maybe a little bit of local press will look at you and interview you, and then that's about it. Like mm-hmm. that's what I was expecting. Because this is at the that's point college. where like. That well, yeah, I mean, yeah, college activism. For Do sure. some protesting, you get laid. Yeah, yep, you get your name. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All that getting laid. Protest, <laughs> man. I will tell you. Knee deep in that. Uh, all right. So what happened? Uh, so yeah, like this is was our plan. Uh, I thought it would fail like at every step of the way. We were just brought in a banner. It said "Stop Hate." This was a bit like there was like one protest that kind of kind of inspired us to do this was uh, at that time there's a woman who wore like a a gold star like uh, you know like referencing the holocaust who was Muslim and went to a rally and was kicked out so we, we, we were kind of like that was a bit of the impetus like to go out there and do something and uh, I mean there are a bunch of other reasons as well but like yeah that's what we did and we got kicked out and um, it went viral like it was just a very weird thing to like what happened in it were you like hit with i mean anything? we were just pushed out of it uh no like i wasn't expecting it to be violent it was like i mean there was the guy like shoving me you can see that but it was just more at that time there hadn't been too many of these protests so like it went viral to a degree because yeah and this was the height of trump's uh pitching the muslim ban thing this was shortly i think it, a bit after, yeah i mean yeah, it was like december january so this is where things really got to break i mean like he had already gone st- strong on the immigration thing. That's where it, it kind of had boosted him from the summer. But then he really started to hammer on um, terrorism and these things. And he became less of like this joke candidate and more like people were starting to be like, this is, you know, getting into quasi-fascist territory. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, So So then uh, wh- you were interviewed by a lot of outlets after that. And then, I mean, you were, you were still doing stand-up at that time, right? Yeah. I mean, it was just st- like I – so like I expected so little of this, I booked uh, a date at Boy Kisses like on yeah. uh, that show because I didn't. Right, shout out, yeah, Minia- great Minneapolis Kisses. show. Yeah. It's over. Yep. Uh, um, so then, okay. Uh, so I'm, that's how it transpired, and there just happened to be like a lot of, I don't know. I guess people had good shots of it, and it, it went viral. And then like also, I guess being Indian, being sick, it just that was brought some interest. Uh, so that was mostly. Yep. And now Arsh is a star. What has that taught you about <laughs> branding? Not really. <laughs> uh, maybe it's taught me like you should not try to brand at all and just do what you you feel like you have a moral obligation to do. Wow, that <laughs> is a risky take <laughs> in this day and age. Indeed. Well, the uh, but then you have less regrets when you look back and you're you weren't in uh, you weren't a YouTube personality. You're like telling me. <laughs> is that difficult to be uh, outspoken uh, of Sikh? Uh, in Iowa as a comedian? Uh, uh, not so much. I mean, like, I was not... Like, where I was at Iowa was City, Iowa right? City, and yeah. it's not that, like... Okay. Regret. Iowa town. also is a little bit like Minnesota in that it's not one of the most backward Midwest states. Like, it has a... I mean, Iowa City also... Historically, that's, like, uh, where you had uh, John Brown coming through to right. go to Kansas. Iowa City is one of the places where he uh, hid slaves. You've got, like, a long... Uh, especially Eastern Iowa has a kind of progressive history to it. I mean, it's a white progressive history, and it's got that kind of baggage with it too. But it's sure. uh, it's legit. I mean, like, I think there's a whole prairie progressive thing that is real and still has lasting impact on uh, the politics in different ways around there. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. My uh, 
The uh, branding thing is funny when it comes to political comedy because it's like people who consume political comedy like very seriously. They don't. They just want you to have a focused ideology and principles. So then when you get into branding, it's like, well, what the fuck are you First doing? First thing you do, throw <laughs> that right away because you got to be sending out these packets and they do not give a fuck but if you believe in the family. And that <laughs> that is becoming the new normal. Like, I mean, I don't I don't know what this opposition show is going to be like. Uh, I know Probably some... the opposite of what you're thinking. <laughs> yeah. That's, the, I think, their plan. I know some people who have contributed to it or have written packets for it and I like those people, but they're not really political at all, which I I guess should be okay if you're just writing comedy, but I don't know. This goes back to the point I've been making for years that we should make joke structure illegal because it is a crutch. For oh, I've been doing that in my things. act for years. Right, you've been really you've been on the vanguard of this. Yeah, in the forefront. I yeah, I was. I'm just. It's not that I'm not technically skilled. It's just I don't believe in joke structure. Right. Yeah. You, your big joke is you read the immigration form. Yeah, there's no structure to that. I, I don't read the sentences in order. It's, it's chaos, baby. Look, here's the paper. I'm lonely. <laughs> well, I feel like three big event, like big, I don't even like calling it political satire because it wasn't, but there were like three big comedy events, uh, which were- I This feel, week? No, in like the last couple of weeks. I'd okay. Say. Yeah, I, it's not that uh, irrelevant, uh, but uh, that I feel like- uh, kind of highlight is just w- the state of things right now and how people like well, there's the trevor noah thing with antifa that segment which is one of the best segments of all time probably mm-hmm. and uh it's- tina fey sheet cake thing which was the first one and then there was conan meeting with netanyahu it's weird because all these things happen in succession like it all happened over the course of a week or so mm-hmm. and conan brought you know, peace in the Middle East in just one week. He was yeah, like, yeah. All yeah. took was out a with s- the IDF, and exactly. then he hung out with some Palestinian. Wait, wait. In the wait. same shot, he's he's holding hands with the IDF, and the Palestinians <laughs> yeah. are way, way over on the other side, starving. <laughs> yeah. And yeah, it's cowering. Right. Andy yeah. Richter is eating some hummus. <laughs> <laughs> it's a great, great. great I scene. heard some good political news this week. Uh, Netanyahu's son got oh, yeah. in trouble in Israel. Uh, for posting an anti-Semitic uh, comic that made it look like lizard people and George Soros are controlling uh, Netanyahu's enemies. Mm. So it's like George Soros doing a puppet hand and then a lizard man doing a puppet Wait, hand. Wait, isn't that the comic we talked about here on this podcast? No, 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 no. This it is, is the recent. same as it, but this is a oh, different one shared message. by Netanyahu, the prime minister of Israel's son. So think of the mental gymnastics we're about to. <laughs> so it, it's, it's, it's the prime minister of Israel's son posting an anti-Semitic cartoon. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, uh, and that's the better option in today's political climate. Apparently. Oh, I didn't hear about this at all. That rules. It's the most exciting thing I think I've ever heard. <laughs> and did they do a feature on Conan? <laughs> How many c- comedians, though, do you think are um, kind of concealing their uh, views or their um, knowledge of the lizard folk? Uh, y- y- well, no, interestingly, I'm not concealing mine. Well, it's interesting here because uh, Omar sure is. Owned. How, how many do you think are concealing? Yeah, well, uh, well, it's interesting because the two, interestingly, the two Caucasians here, we don't, we don't go political on stage very much at all. Andrew's and I uh, stage main is, name is the two Caucasians. The two <laughs> apolitical duo Caucasians. Solid duo yeah. Let's go see the two Caucasians. And then we're not political. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, I think about that in the mainstream all the time is how many people are being apolitical, which is a very political thing to do nowadays. Yeah. When, you, when I always like thought about as growing up as a minority comic, uh, in the Midwest, it was like, well, it's it's like weird for me to not talk about this stuff. Right. Mm. I didn't. I didn't talk about race stuff really at all for the first year or two because I was just so scared of being called a hack or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I just completely abstained from it. But I'm like, no, fuck this. Why would I just not talk about that? Uh, Arish, did you have a similar experience or did you just did you just go into it? Uh, I mean, like I. Uh, here and there, uh, there's a comic here now, uh, Tim Barnes, actually, who I think made me more comfortable doing uh, topics that related more to identity, because like I was actually very much just about doing sort of very out absurd comedy, and there's a specific way I wanted to do it, and that was what interested me. And uh, he he also came from that kind of a background of being like um, he was very much about he wanted he described himself as wanting to be the um, 
uh, uh, the Stephen Wright of black rooms, basically. That's what the kind of <laughs> he wanted to do. He wanted to do like one-liners that were weird and odd, but he wanted to also speak to a black audience in a way that he was still acknowledging, like not acknowledging in a phony way, but just like, I am black and I'm not denying Same it. delivery? Like, not not delivery, just like the, some of the jokes he will tell. Like he has like one about uh, the Chris Rock, like you've got black people versus N-word people. You know, like he's got that kind mm. of... Uh, uh, but he made it like about like diners and like bars or something, something like that. It's just a very like subtle oh, reference oh, to it. Yeah. And like, oh, yeah. And, um, you know, like he'll do stuff like that, uh, that like kind of just hits on a kind of shared knowledge. And, uh, I, I always thought that just seeing him do it and like being comfortable doing it. I think that like encouraged me to an extent, um, but I do know the thing where like, you feel like it's, it's totally weapon people can use against you. It's like, Oh, you do. Someone said that to me. Uh, at some point, like where, uh, oh, you do race stuff because it's a crutch, and then like no one can criticize if the material is bad or not. I'm like, sorry, that's a, I sent you which those happens messages. all <laughs> the time. Well, you know, <laughs> which no, you get criticized for it all the time. Uh, <laughs> well, yeah, and it feels like there's a new phenomenon that I've been tempted by and kind of dabbled in a little bit, where it's like I'm a white guy and like I suck, and but it's easy oh, that's, for me. That's yeah, the most tired trope <laughs> in like Brooklyn comedy. It's uh -huh. very. Um, it's very hard to have an interesting take on the white people are bad and I'm a white guy. Tw Twitty wrote the best joke on it, and everyone has failed to make a better iteration. Really? Shout That's out David Twitty, friend of the show. Well, not just you like, as David's friend, just that everyone thinks this. <laughs> yep, that's, okay. just, that's what it is. Okay. Uh, but uh, and uh, when he's when he says uh, white people be like this, honkies be like this. Yeah, that yeah, whole yeah, chunk. Yeah. Yes. Have you ever noticed honkies are at the diner, but they aren't <laughs> at. The other example, white people are at the brunch while honkies are at the diners. At, at the that, there we go. Yeah, there we go. Um, I feel like there is one more political event this week. We would be kicking ourselves if we didn't talk about. And this is um, when you look up the word politics in a dictionary. Uh, I'm not sure whether it reads about the struggle of interests or um, the vying of power between different groups. But it is this in its essence, and that is Ted Cruz was on Twitter and liked a porn tweet, and everyone found out. Mm -hmm. How? Where were you? I was at Ground Zero, still paying. <laughs> <laughs> it was on 9-11. <laughs> I don't know what you guys were doing, but uh, yeah, I was... I was with Ted, and we were jacking off. Well, uh, I have to, yeah, I have to have roll. To yes, uh, but as I leave, uh, tell me I, I have to go to a show. But I will do a 9/11 joke of your choice. Someone can give me a 9/11 a joke. Oh, I'd like be happy come to up do with it. One right now? Yeah, uh, throw it at me, and I'll do it on the show I'm going to. Okay. Um, I work. At, I I only wrote like one. I, I do you want to do my 9/11 joke? I don't. I can't write a joke for you right now. Well, <laughs> you have. If you have one, if you have one, then now's the time. Uh, I like to go on stage and say um, I think it's stupid that people say Bush did 9/11 uh, because he did not do 9/11. He did the Iraq War, which is like a thousand 9/11s. Yeah. Boom. That, that usually doesn't go very well. But you yeah, could there we go. Say, uh, you could say, did everyone have a good 9/11? That usually goes. Yeah, that's yeah. Then people will give some, yeah, laughs, get them on board. Yeah, ask if they had a good 9-11 and then talk about Oh, wait, I got one. Um, where are my Twin Towers at? Oh, not here. I, uh, <laughs> that fateful good. day. Yeah. I'm going with that. All right. Okay, boom. Thanks, guys. Andrews uh, is off to his uh, show. Uh, do so, like seven, ten more minutes? Oh, we can wrap up at any moment. Is there anything <laughs> you wanted to cover? We're already an hour in. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. I got. Uh, I wanted to ask, Arsh, so you want to continue doing political comedy. Uh, but what do, if you were to establish some kind of career out of it, what would that look like? What's an ideal? Uh... I actually like what I'd ideally like to do is just do like I, I will have my own apolitical absurdist weird act. And if you want to book me for that, that's fine. I'd like to do my political comedy like separately for mm -hmm. anyone. To do that. <laughs> but that's completely unworkable. Like it's a real yeah. strike because like everybody who is like an agent or something is totally worried about how you'd brand yourself and things like and, and it's not enough to like just be like. I'm willing to work with you and I'll keep it to what your content you want to be. Uh, people want you to believe in what they want to believe. Mm -hmm. Like people, like if you're working on the daily show, they really want people who think like, well, you know, there's really problems with both sides. And of course there's problems with both sides in a way, but like what they mean is like, you know, we're going to, we're not going to, uh, how do we write a joke that doesn't really, we're not going to skewer point. the system as a whole, yeah, you know, like yeah, there's, yeah. that's not going to be part of the purview of what we do. 
maybe what you could do is like a Neil Brennan three mics thing where you're like, now I'm going to be a lunatic. <laughs> and then do your absurdist comedy. And you're like, now I'm going to be vulnerable. And then do the talk about something sad. And then you'd have to do a third thing because that's just how this works. Now so what I'm would a it communist. Be? <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I, I did. I have started a show in uh, Chicago, Monkey Ranch, and the whole idea of that show is just to be like a space where you could satirize the system as a whole. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm interested in growing that thing, but I also think like I know it's a liability because like it's not marketable in a fundamental. After like you can get people to come pay tickets, but it it can't expand out of that kind of range right like you can do some of what we're doing that like you could because figure you can't it out with a podcast you can't sell it to a tv station you can't and like money. yeah it, it's not sellable and maybe that's a good thing like maybe there's an interesting like that's what i'm hopeful for it's just a very cool moment to be doing political comedy even at the margins i think in a way like there's a lot of interesting stuff going on it's like that scene in the facebook the great facebook movie the social network where love uh, it yeah they're talking about ads and sean parker uh who is justin timberlake comes in and he goes don't get ads ads means it's not cool anymore it's just like mm-hmm. that and that's what social socialist don't get ads is like right get now. abs yeah. i'm justin timberlake <laughs> and then he does dirty pop my favorite song <laughs> what's your favorite song dirty pop it right. can't stop i think about that every day that's the first thing i think all right but i think it is cool that you got like favorite like you know, you got favorite Twitter comedians who are just doing yeah. it to do it. There are more you've and got, more voices. Like you had, yeah. you had Matt Chrisman and Josh Androwski on Monkey. Yeah, Ranch. and yeah. I've also worked with uh, the Street Fight guys, and those guys are just people who had this idea. Like even during Obama's tenure, they started an anarchist uh, mm-hmm. podcast, and they were just two normal dudes, and uh, they go, they go from they're like creating their own kind of comedy in a way. They do live shows where they're they're on stage and they're interacting with the audience. They kind of have joke structure but they also kind of like keep it real loose and doing those kind of being able to perform on those stages is really interesting because you don't have to play to the middle you already have this audience who like has certain assumptions that you share and that's a that's i think i'm very excited to see how that grows if you're looking for a way to market it um you might be fucked like that's i think that's the i think that's the dilemma a lot of people in production and like higher up and you know whatever kind of outlet you're working for in comedy I think they're kind of fucked with that problem right now. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, yeah, guys, you heard it. Support <laughs> socialist comedy because uh, no one else is going to. Exactly. Arish, did you have anything you'd want to shout out on the pod? Um, I, I'm uh, shout out on the pod. Uh, I will shout out Left Jest. That's a good podcast. Hell <laughs> yeah. Do you want to plug your Twitter? Love those. Uh, my Twitter is uh, Arish-ish, so A-R-I-S-H-I-S-H. Wow, that's confusing. Indeed. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to plug my shit uh, right now, but I will say that uh, following this, we have a very nice interview with a uh, member of the DSA Electoral Working Group in New York. Oh, we yeah, talk about it. elections and how to get socialists in office. Excellent. Shout out, shout out to Chicago DSA. I'll give that. Yeah. Yeah. Very supportive of uh, Monkey Ranch and other comedy stuff we've done. Deep well, dish! Uh, yeah, uh... Thank you so much, Arish, for being on here. Uh, Left Jest. Left Jest. And we're here in the Alex Patak Apartment Studios with Francisco Diaz. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. uh, So Francisco is a representative of the... uh, Would you say you're a representative or just one of the boys? I would just say I'm a member. Okay, that's a better word. Uh, a gender-neutral <laughs> member. <Yeah. laughs> Francisco is a uh, non-gender-specific member of uh, DS- DSA's uh, Manhattan branch. No, I'm uh, in the North Brooklyn branch, uh, but I'm active in the Electoral Working Group. In the Electoral Working Group, Yeah. Um, which is what we wanted to talk about today. Um, so today is Wednesday the day after the big New York primary race. Uh, How do we feel about that, team? Do you have any horses in that race? No, no horses. No horses? I was, you know, on the off-track betting because uh, I was an independent. I switched Democrat to vote for Bernie, and then I switched back to being an independent, so I could not participate that's very active uh, party switching. A yeah. lot of voting station. I just yelled, I got no horse yeah. in this race. <laughs> voted for everything. <laughs> then they escorted me out. It yeah. sucked. But it was a bummer, right? It you would all agree. 
Agreed. It was but a bummer. Was it a bummer or was it, you know, some seeds of something that could grow into a, uh, what's the opposite of a bummer? A, a stellar showing. Well, Promise. you know. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, you could pull a Corbin where a loss is a victory. True. You know? Mm-hmm. Which is paradoxical, but you know, <laughs> I don't feel like that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, that is not what happened in this case. But like, it was promising because you know, a community that had never been really adequately represented had a candidate that was seven uh, percent percentage points from uh, winning the primary. And in this Bay is Ridge Cotter Elliott team, right? Oh, yeah, see. that's exactly okay. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't live in New York City, uh, w- DSA endorsed several candidates running for positions in local government. Well, two. Two? Well, two was several, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they both did not uh, do well. or uh, They did well, but they did not win, which is doing badly. I am a minor league baseball coach now. Well, one of them did win, but you know that was a primary where... Uh, it was the Green Party, where it's not that hard to win a Green Party primary, but, you know. Right. Okay. I forgot about Jabari. I guess because I was thinking of Flydner, is he not officially DSA endorsed? No. He might be a member, um, to my knowledge, but uh, we did not endorse him. You see, I was at the DSA talent show fundraiser they did, where he did a long Bruce Springsteen song. So that really stuck with me. about Wait, which one? How the, the one Bruce Springsteen wrote about how DAs are important. Do you remember that? What? Born to Run for DA? Born to Run yep. for DA. That was it. Uh, oh, so wow. Fleidner was the DA huh? candidate. Um, can you talk a little bit about Cotter Elliott team and his background and uh, yeah. what his positions were? Yeah. So um, he is a Lutheran pastor from uh, South Brooklyn, specifically Bay Ridge. No, he lives in Diker Heights, but is most active in the Arab American community in Bay Ridge. Um and he's been there for about two decades. Um, he immigrated from Palestine, um, so he's Palestinian-American. Uh, and he basically ha- thinks, you know, uh, or, yeah, he thinks Jesus was a socialist, like um, a good liberation theologian. Um, and he was uh, running on a platform of, you know, not taking money from developers uh, or... Uh, real estate interests the way other candidates like his main opponent did and just um, like jesus yeah exactly when he ran oh my gosh mm-hmm. you know he as a carpenter he certainly made houses himself mm-hmm. but never uh never asked uh you know real estate moguls uh for uh money <laughs> never one time nope anyway so you you were uh, working on his campaign well you know volunteering um but my own uh background uh i thought was worth giving uh, my own experience was worth volunteering for them, uh, and I spent the last four days with their Get Out the Vote campaign. Right. Um, and we ha- <coughs> had a lot of volunteers helping him out, Yeah, and it seemed pretty optimistic, and then it did not go our way in the end. Is there anything you thought maybe we could have done differently? Oh, um... Yeah, there are quite a few things, um, but... You had to pick one. <laughs> Let me just start with one. Um... I think we definitely hit the doors too many times. I mean, mm. um, there were definitely moments when even before Get Out the Vote began, folks were, you know, kind of angry at seeing so many canvassers come to their doors. And we were the main campaign that was really canvassing. And I think really what we should be focusing on is more of the quality of the conversations that we try and have with voters to really deepen their interests in progressive politics, but sp- specifically democratic socialist politics as opposed to trying to get a name in front of them so many times. Yeah, because we definitely had the manpower. I, I went to go canvas for him on Monday, and they were telling me at the office that they had people calling in from San Diego to right. make calls for someone in Bay Ridge, which is, that's a long call. I imagine it costs more. Um, and and what and do you think that played a uh, role, too, people coming from outside the district um, the residents there. To, yeah. No, I they don't think so. These Californians might <laughs> convert us. Yeah, well, you can always say, you know, I'm just volunteering with the campaign. You don't have to tell them anything more. Right. Um, but really, like, why should that be an offensive thing to anyone, right? Like, I think it should be flattering, the fact that people care that much about democracy that they want to support someone who's mm-hmm. actually championed their values, it you know, God forbid, like my own uh, city network. Yeah. yeah. My, city, my own city councilor doesn't even stand up for, like, fraction of what i believe in you know 
Right, and he's still uh, representing you every day. <laughs> yep. So what do you think is keeping voters apprehensive or indifferent? Um, what, what do you mean by that? Like, I mean, you said you were canvassing. Made, I mean, obviously it was a huge effort, but doesn't seem to be uh, resulting in good turnout. So in that case, I th- think really what happened was that we had gained their support and then we lost it by annoying them. Ah. Mm. Um, so, you know... Once someone is identified as a voter, um, you know, as someone who's supporting you, like even if they're just like, let's say, kind of leaning your way, mm-hmm. why the, you know, like why do we need to talk to them again um, one week or two weeks after? And, uh, or, you know, and I'm like I personally as a voter would find that pretty annoying mm-hmm. unless I was deeply, deeply interested in this campaign. And that's where, you know, trying to put our head like, put ourselves through in the perspective of the voter and ha- try and m- have them be more interested in what we have to say and in our perspective um, is really key in the long run, which is not to say that didn't happen on a basic level, but uh, we probably tried it a little too many times. And do you think that got people to stay home or vote for another candidate? Uh, both. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, I mean, this is right now, you know, coming out of this, like, very pessimistic, you know. Yeah. This morning I, w- I woke up with, like, feeling really, really bad about the whole thing. Um, but, you know, at the same time, uh, if you're going to be knocking on a door and you're starting to get responses like people saying, I used to support him, now I don't know who to support. Mm-hmm. And other positions mm-hmm. as well as saying, you know, um, uh, yeah, I have got you have knocked on my door so many times that I don't want to support you anymore. One guy I knocked on his door and he had big scary dogs and then he kind of menaced me away with them. So that's a fun situation. That's that a libertarian. Alex. <laughs> that's a, we can still get his vote and I will get it. Um, so <laughs> I was talking to Francisco a little bit before we started recording and you were saying that you felt like this was a winnable race, uh, but that you've worked on other campaigns previously that maybe not might have been so optimistic do you want to talk a little bit about your history yeah um like i think it was we could have at least have been hopeful about seeing a real victory out of this race um i had worked for the bernie sanders campaign over the course of you know nine months first beginning in the new hampshire primary um where i was there for about uh six months and we had zero like we had no base you know, everyone likes to, I think a lot of people like to tell the story of the New Hampshire primary as saying, well, he was right, you know, he was right next door in Vermont, but like in cities, in the city that I was stationed in, like, it, no one knew who he was. The tendrils of socialism creeping uh, from one state to the next. And this was a district where that had gone for Bernie, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I like worked in Nashua, which was supposedly uh-huh. what was called Clinton country during primary season. Um, and where Clinton had obliterated Ob- Obama and uh, Bill Clinton had done exceptionally well, kind of leading him to uh, not win New Hampshire, but the media definitely took it as Bill Clinton winning New Hampshire. Um, this Come is back in 1992. Kid. Yeah. So, like, for two decades, this area was, like, considered, like, southern New Hampshire was considered, uh, like, a strong base of support for the Clintons and establishment liberal party Democrats. Um and instead, you know, what happened was that we won by large majorities in almost every single electoral district in New Hampshire. And that happens by doing really deep organizing. Um, we were like the folks who went who were a part of the campaign, who uh, were trained in New Hampshire, were specifically trained as like more in the style of a labor organizer or a community organizer rather than like a classic electoral organizer, which is often a very transactional sort of experience that you have with volunteers. Mm-hmm. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, so, and well, that makes me wonder, like, what are some kind of specific points uh, within that district that you could have approached in a different way that would be less transactional but would still spread uh, the message of, Reverend all your team and, and get people to vote for him. I mean, I think what maybe what could have happened a little bit differently, and I, I think we were definitely heading in that direction where canvassers during what was called the persuasion phase of a campaign uh-huh. were trying to have deeper conversations specifically about the issues and where the voters felt um, or, or the issues that particularly mattered with voters. But I think what we could have done a little bit more was to focus on the questions that we would ask voters as opposed to trying to sell them a, 
uh, a policy point or a talking point or a piece of his history, right. but instead trying to listen to them because when people feel like they're being listened to, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to become more emotionally attached with the right. person that they're talking to. So <laughs> what kind of grievances do they air? Um, you know, like people are frustrated with the fact that city government is largely unresponsive to the, their needs, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you have a landlord, which, you know, almost everyone does. Everyone almost hates their landlord because mm. their landlord has very little common interest with them and therefore often ignores their basic needs, even though we, uh, you know, pay them uh, a lot of money for them to basically do nothing. Jabari Bridgeport is not running as a Democrat. He's yeah. running, as you mentioned, uh, for he received the nomination of the Green Party. W- can you talk a little bit about the decision-making that went into into that, his, his decision to not run on the Democratic line? Well, I think it goes deeper than just kind of the particular case of deciding to support someone who's uh, in his particular case where, it, you know, one might see it as he's deciding not to run as a Democrat, but he's proactively deciding to run as a Green. Yeah. Because inside of DSA on kind of a national level, there's a strategic or political split around whether or not we should be running as third party right. or independence or we should be running inside of the Democratic Party. And then the additional point, which has been often what a lot of people have derided DSA as being of, is basically folks who just want to take over there and reform the Democratic Party, mm-hmm. which running as uh, in a pr- Democratic primary is not necessarily the same thing, right? Like, yeah. I like running in the Democratic primary because it's a lot easier to win, and it you get to knock off, you know, a, a capitalist who would have won otherwise much more easily right um what would have been your biggest opponent later if you ran third party exactly and uh, you get to push these policies into the mainstream right. yeah, yeah yeah these yeah, are yeah, great a points. lot so this goes directly into something i wanted to talk about which is how the electoral working group functions uh do you f- feel like so in new york if you're working in the working group like what is a meeting like like what are you guys focusing on um so you know there are several kind of subcommittees within the working group um so it's the biggest working group right uh, I don't know. Actually, a lot of the working groups are getting pretty large at this point. So we got a lot of large groups, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, we'll um, be right back. <laughs> Not really. He's <laughs> fucking okay. around. Um. Uh. So I think me. So we. So there is now several uh, electoral working groups. There's one in Queens. There's kind of one in, based in uh, North Manhattan and in the Bronx. Um. And there's the Brooklyn one. And the Brooklyn one has kind of was the first one and specifically was the one that kind of initiated uh, to initiate support for the Elliott team campaign and initiated support for Jabari Brisport's campaign. Uh, and but meetings are really kind of these large once a month uh, kind of gatherings of 70 or so people who are all kind of there to get updates from the actual groups that are doing the work within it. So we have kind of a field team that is really focused on how do we talk to uh, voters and how do we do outreach and how do we um, grow the base for a particular candidate um, and for democratic socialist policies. And then uh, there's another group uh, that takes care of a lot of the data um, that goes into gathering when you're talking to a voter because you need to... uh, understand what the voters key issues are where they stand on a given candidate or on a given policy and how we record that and there's some really interesting projects going on within each of these groups um so yeah and then there's also the need to kind of be legally um compliant with electoral law which luckily we have some pretty great lawyers who know quite a bit about that yeah it's always impressive going to these meetings uh i Andrews and I were used to go to m- many more climate justice meetings than we've been going to recently, and there's no better way to feel like the dumbest person in a room than finding a bunch of angry scientists who want to, like, <laughs> talk shop. Um, and I imagine it's very much the same in electoral. Uh, it's it, So from I'm taking from what you're saying that there's, like, this enormous complex uh, interlocking structure, uh, crunching data for uh, local elections and uh, planning uh, strategy for maybe larger ones. And uh, it's all a, more of a traditional electoral uh, machine. Is there any? Do are there? Is there a sect that wants to focus on more just like grassroots, organizational, uh, local community building stuff? Well, I mean, I think there 
they are kind of trying to do that. I think a, a really well-oiled machine, a democratic socialist machine, will be able to efficiently win elections, but also build support and expand that support in a in a community if they know how to talk to people. You know, and that's like when we have a conversation at the door, we have an opportunity to organize someone who's willing to be receptive, at least for a brief moment. You know, so I think there is a little bit of a false dichotomy there. Does that make sense? Right, um, and that uh, that makes you think about where to classify actions that are outreach that are political but aren't inherently electoral um so right. their actions i forget which state this was in but this was like last week there were people fixing cars oh yeah like in tail uh lights. tail lights new orleans yeah exactly and That's these are right. like horses that move on their own it's fascinating <laughs> stuff what um, <laughs> cars i mean uh, but you <laughs> should talk about the thing <laughs> Um, uh, so yeah, I think that's a great, uh, example of the kinds of service projects that, uh, particular chapters are doing, um, right now within DSA. I know that a couple branches are actively thinking, how do we do more outreach within, uh, our communities and really build support among, uh, communities of color, uh, like the Dominican American community in, uh, Bushwick, for example. I know that's something that the North Brooklyn branch is thinking about, members are thinking about, um, but that can be both like where we provide a service for free where that we can, we know we have the ability to provide, or it could look like, um, you know, helping organize, let's say tenant unions, right. uh, where tenants get to learn how to advocate mm -hmm. for themselves and really push back and right. negotiate with their landlords. So from a, a cynical outside distance, if we're already spending all of this labor trying to break into the electoral machine kind of to minimal results for the most part as of yet, that seems like all of this effort that could just be used towards en masse community building that might be more effective later and directly helpful to the people we're trying to win over. Well, I think he's saying that these those things are not mutually exclusive. Right. Uh, and it seems that like a lot of the in a lot of these cases um, do you find that these are people who you're not necessarily competing with other uh, political organizations for their support or their votes? These are people who in many ways have not been reached out to in a political way at all. Yeah. I mean, you have to remember that, um, you know, uh, uh, what's it called? Um, uh, what's the term? Uh, I'm totally forgetting. Well, like 14 percent of the electorate that was eligible to vote went and voted yesterday in the primaries. Right. It's like an incredibly yeah. small amount, of, a small number of people who are actually going out and voting and who are being uh, electorally engaged. And I think that's largely because uh, most electoral platforms do not actually represent the interests of the majority. Mm -hmm. Oh, know, hell yes. You know, like, uh, you know, when you look at presidential politics, for example, when you're thinking about the presidential campaign, uh, how many people voted even in the general? You know, about 50 percent. Right of eligible voters yeah, 90 million didn't the big one yeah. we all talk about and make tv shows about every week for four years wait what happened um i i wanted to ask too in about the election <laughs> uh, trump won it was awful yeah yeah the <laughs> never forget dude Did you get the <laughs> oh no anders <laughs> that's the thing the guy keeps forgetting <laughs> <laughs> yeah how'd that end again <laughs> Uh, well, that's what that was her alternate title. What? How did that end again? What uh, happened? <laughs> Hillary Clinton's branching off that. Like what? So these people who haven't, who are just being reached out to, that what? What are you, the conversations you're having? What are some of the reservations? Is it as simple as they're just distrust of uh, general bureaucracy, or they just don't know who you are? Are they indifferent about politics? I mean, we're really just beginning. I haven't been a part of these conversations, but if they're at all like indifferent if my prior ex uh, experience is at all indicative, it's just like a lack of familiarity, yeah. right? A lack, but also a lack of trust. And they have a lot of folks, a lot of working class folks have a lot of good reasons to be, ha to not trust people who come and talk to them because they are so used to being transacted with as if they are commodities. Mm -hmm. You know, you think about old school, like party boss politics, which has never left, you know, it has never really left New York. Uh, how do you expect like a working class community to really believe that you know uh this supposed like supposedly progressive candidates like uh andrew cuomo are really going to care about their interests like yeah i know he doesn't give a crap about what i what i think or w the stuff that i go through mm -hmm. you know um and that's certainly the case with you know 
working class communities, whether they're in Bushwick or whether they're in uh, rural upstate New York. Well, that's something I wanted to ask you about, too, is because uh, like in people for people who come from outside of New York, uh, still from the United States, we you know think of it as this sort of progressive utopia. You know, we got the soda taxes. And we the use the word utopia. We do. We're oasis. You know, this very big we got, city. Yeah. Take a bite. Big apple. It's great. There's exposed areolas walking around. Yeah, like it's it's a, a very we us. think of it as a very progressive place. Yeah. Uh, which in a lot of ways it's a large misconception. Um, so what yeah. what, what are for some of the like the structural roadblocks to having like a, an actual progressive social democratic government, which uh, I think it's pretty clear a, a majority of New Yorkers would support. What's what's the what are some of the obstacles to actually happening from I that mean, happening? Really, for them to understand that there is a possible alternative, right? Yeah. When you're so used to, and I say this also having grown up with a sense of these kinds of politics that exist in New York, yeah. Because this these were the kinds of politics that my parents grew up with in Mexico, where a government supposedly cares about what you think, but really doesn't and just manipulating you for, or at least the politicians who are part of this government mm -hmm. are manipulating you so that they can, um, or manipulating your, your emotions about certain issues to get right. themselves votes, give patronage to, uh, you know, certain individuals. But, uh, but really, you know, ultimately does that ch fundamentally change the reality that uh, the rent is too damn high? No, it doesn't, <laughs> you know. Um, so the resource is political engagement. Yeah. Like I, that's the X factor. Yeah, I think that is. Um, but it's going to take a lot of, com like, really fundamentally conversations and, ac uh, like, activation of folks who have been disenga disengaged, have uh, kind of more nihilist approach towards politics because politics has not never done anything for them right. in their lifetimes. Can you think of any uh, examples from your time in New Hampshire that uh, where you got some people who were totally uninterested engaged? Yeah. I mean, like, for example, um, when I was canvassing, well, not when I was canvassing, but we had a canvasser who uh, was um, young and in her 30s, and she went out, and we had, in, we had done a training where we had said, look out for kind of other cues of from your from the person you're talking to that might indicate the kinds of issues that they care about. And then she came at, back really excited from this canvassing um uh, 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 shift where she asked someone who was uh, was a, clearly a young mother because this person seemed totally disinterested, was really frustrated that you know so why would someone come to their door, and um, and she's busy, she's a mom, right? Exactly. But then she asked, "Hey, are you a working mother?" Mm -hmm. And then she goes into how Bernie Sanders's uh, policy platform uh, included as kind of a central feature universal child care like high mm. quality universal child care that mm. is a fundamental feature of any sort of social democratic government um and so that clearly grabbed her attention um and won her vote very quickly because she got to talk about her own struggles of being a mother yeah um and trying to make ends meet while also trying to uh, maintain house payments and um keep her job it's so simple and dumb and exciting that you can r get people on board with uh, participating in democracy just by pointing out that we could have nice things if we wanted them. <laughs> yeah, Eugene Debs, uh, you know, Americans can have anything they want if they just ask. Um, what, in, is there an effort, uh, too, or maybe discussion of an effort to maybe go into these communities and just purely listen to people and have them come out and just say what it is in their lives that, uh, these sort of day-to-day -day, um, issues that... Uh, well, I, I mean, like, I think the opportunities are when we especially do service projects, for yeah. example. Um, I think for some weird reason, there are DSA members right now having arguments on Twitter and on Facebook about whether service projects are worthwhile or whatever. Uh -huh. But um, I think they really missed the entire point, right? Yeah. These are opportunities to have real conversations where, they, where the folks, the working-class folks that we really want to talk to who don't know yet that there are political organizations that are actively trying to represent their interests. Mm -hmm. But when there's something that they can immediately get from us, there's an opportunity to really engage right. over things that are beyond, like, let's say, le uh, something like tutoring some of, uh, some of the kids in the neighborhood, right? When we talk to their parents about, like, 
what is life like with dealing with their landlord? Are they being tra- are folks being evicted or something like that? Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be a huge opportunity where we start really engaging and politicizing a group of people who thought politics was never for them. Right. Um, so now we're in this moment right after the local election, uh, which can feel kind of, you know, like a release, I guess, no matter how it goes, uh, because we're far away from the next step, or at least there's some time between it. Um, well, not really. I mean, like two months is not is barely enough time to really set up a winning campaign. But there's a real chance of seeing Jabari Brisport, who's making an outside run at a at an incumbent Democrat who is widely disliked in her own district. But you know, for being a known name, it's so easy for her to mm-hmm. win. But if this is Cumbo, right? Yeah, this is Lori Cumbo in uh, Crown Heights. And but what's really exciting too was that DSA gathered enough signatures to have a socialist uh, by like line in the fusion voting of New York, uh, so that yes. there are like Jabari's on two lines um, when on the ballot. So he's on as a green and on as a socialist. So we get to actively organize as socialists for a socialist who's be, who can be identified as such. And as someone who actively represents those interests, specifically those of working class people. And that's really exciting as opposed to a green. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, for me personally, and th- I'm not speaking on totally on behalf of the I'm working excited. group. But I get, I'm excited that I don't have to advocate for a party that like for uh, you know the Latinos in the district um, or for black folks in the district. They're going to think, oh, this is just a bunch of s- suburban white uh, hippie soccer moms who, yeah. uh, you know, are using their uh, using green uh i mean this is like a like a caricature but like or like read articles about how crystals are going to heal uh, <laughs> or improve like their fitness or whatever i don't know uh-huh. um but that's the association that you get with the green party because they constantly run uh vanity mm-hmm. campaigns that don't really uh they actively center build the crystals yeah. yeah yeah exactly right yeah <laughs> Which should just be an important part of the platform, but maybe not what we lead with, right? Right, guys? Um, I do feel like there's we'll something excited to get about uh, socialism, socialists on socialists, uh, being socialists, working for socialism. It's like chocolate on a chocolate muffin, baby. It's the fucking World class best. chocolate. Best <laughs> Baskin Robbins flavor, if you ask me. So this is not a bad time to get involved, um, and there never is. I guess is a resounding point. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you know. Well, as long as you're not uh, being annoying about it, yeah. Yeah, don't yeah. be people annoying. people in, in Bay Ridge, yeah. Well, but that's an important Fuck. lesson for us to learn, right. you know. Uh-huh. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity here, whether or not we win or lose, but really to build a base in a place where, you know, there's a key, like, flashpoint issue, specifically around the Bedford Union Armory, which is kind of this uh, point where a public piece of land is being sold, uh, to uh, or is in the process of potentially being sold uh, to private developers who are going to develop uh, who are going to uh, build like luxury condos and apartments. Yeah, you know, and not and that's something that is not at all accessible to the local community. So it's something that people can reach out to and rather minds around. Did you have something? Else? Yeah, yeah. To harken back to your point, Alex, about how we can have nice things. Like a few episodes, we had Jazz Hooksod, who's one of the authors of the Afro uh, Socialist Caucus. And I remember him talking about campaigning for Sanders, like in the Bronx, and being surprised of how like staunchly for Hillary everyone was. But when he talked to you know some union members or workers and kind of laid out the the points of Bernie's plan, they're like, "Yeah, that sounds great." Oh well, the stuff we wanted, we yeah. didn't we didn't think we could have. Like, <laughs> oh, I thought that was her plan. No, the, like it's very possible, and that's why outreach is so important on on these local levels. If right. You, if you get around issues instead of people, I feel like that's. Uh, clearly yeah. the path forward which right told, um, yeah. and like to just give you an example of that that where that actually did happen and happened successfully bernie won the latino vote in chicago in the area of uh, like the area around chicago too of f- like it with close to 60 percent of support and that's kind of wildly contradictory to the main narrative that everyone was telling during during the primary campaign that be- white people vote for Bernie for racism. Yeah, basically. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm a Latino who clearly mm-hmm. voted for him as such. Uh-huh. Um, but, uh, but no, it was because we had let Latino canvassers going to Latino doors, talking to, um, Latino families about fundamental working class issues and saying that, Hey, he might be a weird kind of, uh, <laughs> 
like uh, weird-looking uh, old Jewish guy from Vermont who's a socialist, but that means that he really cares actually about what we need and yeah. like our basic social and economic needs, and that's really important. And so by the time it was election day and people were knocking on their doors, they were saying, "Oh yeah, el viejito, like the old guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll vote for him." <laughs> um, and that's kind of crazy to think about yeah. um, when you think about that in a much kind of uh, uh, bigger scale. But that's really because we talk about the fundamental issues that are driving people, people's basic needs, right? And I think there's an idea that when someone represents that and we lead with the issues, as, as you all mentioned, um, we have a real shot at winning. You know, I feel better at the end of this conversation than I did when we started. And I feel like <laughs> that's the point to wrap it up on. Francisco, did you have anything else you wanted to add? No. It's been great to be on here. Yeah, thanks for coming thanks on. This is right. amazing. Yeah. Um, we'll gladly have you on again if you ever have something you want to talk about. Sure. Um, also, just a disclaimer, I'm just a member of the working group, not necessarily uh, representative of the members of it. Does that make sense? Yes. You it's speak for that yourself. makes sense, and it's good to get out here on the official podcast of the DSA, <laughs> Left Chest. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot. I'm thanks. cutting everything after that last part. <laughs> <laughs>